Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 141. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, what an announcement I've got later on in this show, so do stay tuned for that. Probably the biggest announcement of this year for Starship Sofa. One hell of an announcement. But I'll give you a little clue what's coming up in the day's show. First off, we've got a little, a new little section, which I'm hoping actually will be a new little section. Whether anybody takes up the challenge and has the, the guts or the nerves to do this is a different matter. But Matthew Sanborn-Smith certainly did. I'll give you the story about this little new idea and then I will read it out at the beginning of the show. Matthew sent a script over to 2000 AD and for some reason or other, you know, now you can't get the, the return envelope, stamps, everything like that. You can't get the, the, the replies back. So he sent to my address, care of Tony C. Smith. I've got the letter here. The return letter from 2000 AD. Has Matthew's script for that shoot or that magazine? That comic being picked up, or has it not? I'm going to read that out later. Matt hasn't got a clue, so he's sitting there now waiting. It hasn't been opened. It's there. Anybody else want to do this? Drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Do you want to 
tell everybody on Starship Sova, you know, has your story been accepted? Has it been rejected? Is this a good little idea or not? I'm dying to read this story. So, Matt, stand by your podcast. Next up, we have a little intro to the fiction, and it's by David Barr Curley. David Barr Curley has a story coming up in this show called Cats in Victory. And in conjunction with the brand new magazine, online magazine, Lightspeed, Starship Sova, in conjunction with Lightspeed, has produced this story. And what a great little story it is. We've got an intro by David Barr Curley, then the main fiction by him as well. Then we have an intro by our good friend Jeff Carlson to his fiction, Pressure. Then we'll get into Jeff Carlson's story, Pressure, as well. Then we have the closing remarks, which is the big announcement. Can you guess what it is? All fun and games. Don't forget, come over and vote for Then and Now. That's still running this month. Philip K. Dick, Juliet Wade. We'd like to find your votes. Just come over to the front of the website. And also look us up on Twitter and Facebook. And again, if you want to maybe send in your rejection or get your rejection acceptance i'm gonna say that as well you know what i mean because there will be a couple get them sent to me care of tony c smith i will read them out on the show how about that so let's get into matthew sanborn smith's letter matt now first off you know (laughs) is this your handwriting matt because that's worse than mine and i have got one of the most shockingly bad handwritings in the world but that math that looks terrible matthew sanborn smith care of tony smith 16 pence stamp what a cheap skate must have took about four weeks to get here right and this is it yeah 2000 ad rebellion developments limited Dear Matthew, <coughs> drum roll, drum roll, Matt. Now, when you get a letter from one of these, you know, where you, you submit the stories, the first word you don't want is apologies. <laughs> it starts off, Dear Matthew, apologies for the brevity of this letter, but I do assure you that each and every unsolicited submission to 2000 AD receives the fullest individual attention. Thank you for your script submission, A City on the Move. Unfortunately, I don't feel it is suitable for 2000 AD at the present time. Yours sincerely, Matt Smith, editor. <laughs> Namesake as well. The sod turned you down, Matt. <laughs> Shall I rip it? Shall I go and tell They're probably just near here, Oxford. No, a few hundred miles away. I'll go and knock their lights out. <laughs> How can they turn down our Matt Sanborn Smith? Matt, the travesty, travesty. <laughs> if anybody else wants to, <laughs> wants to go through the humiliation of having their acceptance rejection letters read out on the air, drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. <laughs> So on to the main fiction and in conjunction with the brand new Lightspeed online magazine, we have David Barkirtley's Cats in Victory. I'll give you a little heads up about Lightspeed. It is a new online magazine which deals in all science fiction stories and fact articles. 
And they also put out audio narrations as well. It is from Prime Books and fiction editor is John Joseph Adams. John Joseph Adams, as you know, Wastelands, The Living Dead 1 and 2. One of the best anthologizers in the business at the moment. And it's got some great ones coming up in the future. But he's fiction editor over at Lightspeed Magazine. And this is the first month they've kicked off. And got I got actually John Joseph Adams along with Doug Cohen from Realms of Fantasy on... The Sofa Notes number 36. And I asked John some loads of questions about Lightspeed, you know, and how it's going and how, what their plans are. And it's got great ideas. Do you know what I mean? So please pop over to Lightspeed magazine. Everything's free there. You can, if you want, buy the whole month's subscription at, at the very beginning of the month, but eventually, as the month rolls out, all this fiction, all non-fiction will get rolled out for free as well. There is audio on there as well. And it's, Produced by, do you know what I mean? Makes us jealous as hell. It's produced by Stefan Rudnicki, who's probably one of the top guys in the audio production, you know, narration field. So a great magazine. They've also got an iPhone app as well. So they kind of know, they've got their head screwed on light speed about this digital age and where you need to kind of focus your energies. And at the end of the year, there will be, John Joseph Adams tells us, there will be an, an anthology as well. So you can buy that in the paperback form as well. This month sees, they came out on the 1st of June with the fiction I'm Alive, I Love You, I'll See You in Reno by Viola Kaften. June the 3rd had non-fiction by Mike Brotherton. Is there anybody out there who wants to go fast? June the 8th came The Cassandra Project by Jack McDivitt. And there was an author spotlight on Jack McDivitt as well. June the 15th is the conjunction with Starship Sofa's Cats in Victory by David Barr Kirtley. June the 17th, they've got non-fiction, Top 10 Reasons Why Uplifted Animals Don't Make Good Pets by Carol Pachensky. June the 22nd, Amaryllis by Carrie Vaughan, and it's actually narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. So, a great magazine, that's what we need, new magazines, new fresh blood on the scene there to keep the creative juices going. Do pop over to lightspeedmagazine.com, links on the front of the show. Today's story is by... David Barr-Kirtley. David's had stories actually in Realms of Fantasy, Escape Pod, Pseudopod. He's been in New Voices of Science Fiction, among loads of others. He's also been in John Joseph Adams' The Living Dead and Living Dead 2, which is out soon. And I asked David just to give a little introduction to this story. So, David. Hi, this is David Barr-Kirtley, author of Cats and Victory. So years ago, I was at the New York area science fiction convention, Lunacon, and I was hanging out with John Joseph Adams. And he recommended a book to me, but warned me that it contained talking animals, as if that might put me off it. And I said, no, that's cool. I like talking animals. And later it occurred to me that, hey, yeah, I do like talking animals. And yet I'd never written about any. So I decided to write a story about some talking animals, and I wrote a story called Red Road, about sword-wielding mice who go off on a quest. It's a sort of dark comedy slash political allegory. And it appeared in the July 2008 issue of Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, if anyone wants to check it out. So anyway, I had such a good time writing that one that I decided to write a second story about talking animals. And as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that actually I had written some material along those lines, but it was a long time ago and I'd sort of forgotten about it. But back when I was about five years old, I did a series of picture books called Cats and Victory. Now, I've always been much more of a cat person than a dog person, so my stories had been about a band of heroic anthropomorphic cats who just go around slaughtering evil anthropomorphic dogs. Looking back over those stories, I was a little horrified by the subtext. It was obvious that those stories had been very strongly influenced by the Saturday morning cartoons I'd watched as a kid. 
some of those cartoons have started coming out on DVD now, and I rewatched some of them. And I was a little horrified at the subtext of those, too. You know, I could definitely see where the stuff that now kind of disturbs me had come from. Uh, but all the same, I had really loved those cartoons as a kid, and I still really enjoy watching them. And so I decided to kind of reboot my old Cats and Victory universe and try to capture some of the things that I still love about those old cartoons. The sense of adventure, the colorful characters, the combination of fantasy and science fiction. But to hopefully make it a bit more thoughtful. In addition to that, there were two things I heard that I think influenced this story. One was a quote by Michael Shermer, the editor of Skeptic Magazine, who pointed out that the only program on American television that really gives a fair shake to skeptics and that encourages critical thinking is a children's cartoon, Scooby-Doo, in which the supernatural monsters invariably turn out to be just guys in rubber suits. And the other inspiration was a joke I heard that went, If you feed a dog and take care of it, as far as that dog's concerned, you're God. Whereas if you feed a cat and take care of it, as far as that cat's concerned, it's God. So that's where the story came from. The full text of this story also appears in the debut issue of Lightspeed, a new online science fiction magazine edited by John Joseph Adams. And it's free, so if you're listening to this at your computer, you could bring up the text and read along if you want. I sometimes find that helpful when I'm listening to a story. And I did really write this story with the idea that it would be something that kids might enjoy, so if you know any kids who you think might be interested, please pass it along. And I think that's it, so I hope you enjoy the story. The story is narrated by Rajan Khanna. So the starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Cats in Victory by David Barr Kirtley. Lynx awoke before dawn. He got out of bed, brushed his whiskers, and licked his fur clean. He dressed in boots and a tunic, then donned his rucksack, and set out into the dusty streets. The sun was just beginning to peek up over the thatched rooftops. Most of the other catmen of the village were still asleep. Lynx hiked west, out of town, through the foothills, and into the wasteland, where he wandered amid the stark beauty of the stony plains, winding arroyos, and towering plateaus. He loved walking here, and today he'd secretly resolved to explore as far to the west as he could. His parents would disapprove. Like all the adults of the village, they harbored a vague mistrust of the wasteland, maybe due to the strange mechanical artifacts that they said were sometimes discovered beneath the sands. But the more time Lynx spent out here, the more he felt that such misgivings were baseless. All morning he climbed hills, clambered over fields of boulders, and strode between pillars of stone. Finally, around midday, his westward progress was blocked by a narrow canyon that stretched as far as he could see in either direction. The canyon floor was forty feet below, and the walls were too sheer to climb, so Lynx turned north, skirting the cliff edge and searching for a way across. Finally, he came to a place where a giant tree had grown up from the canyon floor beside the near wall. The tree was dead now, but its pale, branchless trunk would provide easy access down into the canyon. Though there was no telling whether... Wait, what was that? He thought he saw movement below. A few hundred yards away, the canyon wall was broken by a wide, low cavern. A figure detached itself from the darkness and wandered down onto the sand. Lynx ducked, then slowly raised his head again as the figure came to a halt. As far as Lynx knew, nothing lived out here except lizards and birds. But this figure was the size of a catman and walked upright. Then the thought came to him. A dogman. Here? Impossible. But it had to be. He knew he should flee, get help, but... The dogmen were almost extinct. This might be the only chance he'd ever get to see one. And he should make sure it was really a dogman before he alarmed the whole village. He dropped his rucksack and kicked off his boots. He paced, flexing his hand and foot claws. Then he dashed to the edge of the cliff and leapt onto the tree. His claws dug into the wood, and he hung there a moment, then scrambled down the trunk and dropped lightly to the canyon floor. He sneaked toward the cave, ducking behind one boulder, 
then another, then another. A strong breeze blew into his face, and this was good for the wind would muffle his footsteps and carry his scent off behind him. He lay down and crawled on elbows and knees until he was just a dozen yards away from the mysterious figure, then peeked around a rock. Yes, a dogman. It was burlier than any catman, and Lynx could make out its grotesque floppy ears. It wore a grungy tunic and a heavy broadsword. Then the creature turned its head, and Lynx glimpsed his profile. A flat face with saggy jowls and wrinkled folds of flesh around the eyes. A horrible, misshapen creature. An abomination. Lynx began to crawl backward, then paused as he spied a second figure emerging from the cave. This one was not so terrible. A female, slender, perhaps as young as Lynx. Her snout was white, her large eyes banded with brown, and her long, silky ears hung past her shoulders. She too wore a sword, a rapier. In Lynx's imagination, dogmen had always been ugly and fearsome, and... male. He wondered about the female. What was she to the hulking beast beside her? His ally? His wife? She had a sweet look to her. Or was that deceptive? Had she ever killed a catman? Suddenly the big male straightened and poked his nose in the air, sniffing loudly. Once. Twice. Lynx felt a prickle of terror. While he'd been distracted, the breeze had shifted, and he was now upwind of the dogmen. The male roared, Catmen, and whipped out his sword. He turned and stared straight at Lynx, who leapt up from his hiding spot and sprinted away, dodging around boulders and vaulting over ditches. Behind him came heavy footfalls and throaty growls as the male chased him, gained on him. Lynx spotted the tree, his escape. The female cried, No, stop him! Lynx ran to the tree, sprang onto it, and scuttled upward. The male bellowed and leapt after him, and Lynx heard the swish of the broadsword and the thunk of metal on wood. The whole tree shuddered as the sword struck just below his feet. He climbed out of reach. The female dogman shrieked in despair, and the male let loose a frustrated howl. Lynx fled the canyon as the dogman's terrible barking rose up from below him and echoed in his ears. It wasn't until much later, when he was far from that place, that he noticed any pain. Then he found that he was missing a few inches off the end of his tail. Blood pooled there and fell in thick droplets to the sand. Night had fallen by the time Lynx got back to the village. He headed straight to the temple, raced to the main doors, and burst into the antechamber. A scribe sat at the small wooden desk and scribbled in a ledger with a quill pen. When he saw Lynx's agitation, the scribe stood. "'Can I help you?' Lynx gasped for breath. "'I have to see Father Cougar.' The scribe stared disapprovingly. "'Father Cougar is delivering the evening service.' Lynx said, "'There are dogmen, living in the wasteland, hiding in the caves.' "'Dogmen? Are you sure?' "'Yes, I'm sure. They chased me, with swords.' Lynx held up the tip of his tail, which was clotted with blood. The scribe grew alarmed. "'All right. Wait here.' He hurried over to a pair of heavy wooden doors, then slipped through, closing the doors behind him. Lynx stepped forward and pressed his ear to the wood. Father Cougar's booming voice filled the other room. Lynx could only make out some of the words, but he grasped the essence of the sermon. Father Cougar was preaching, as ever, about how these were the end times, and about the coming victory, when Cat would return to Earth, the Dogmen would be destroyed forever, and the Catmen would regain their pure feline forms. Father Cougar's voice died away. He must be conferring with the scribe. Finally, the scribe reappeared and said, Follow me. He led Lynx down a hallway to a cozy chamber whose walls were hung with tapestries. Father Cougar, wearing his vestments, sat on a sofa in the corner. He said warmly, Lynx, come in, come in. Lynx picked a chair and sat down. Father Cougar settled back and stroked his scruffy gray whiskers. Now, tell me what happened. Lynx explained about coming across the dogmen in the wasteland. 
Father Cougar listened intently and then said, And they saw you? Lynx hesitated, then admitted, Yes. Father Cougar narrowed his eyes. How? Lynx stared at the floor. I'm sorry, Father. I was curious. Father Cougar sighed deeply, as I thought. He leaned forward, his gaze steady. How many times must I tell you? Curiosity is the gravest of sins. And now you see what your curiosity has cost us. If you had avoided detection, we could have easily located these dogmen and captured them. But now they'll be expecting us, and will move on. The danger to those who track them is greatly increased. And what if the dogmen should slip away? You may very well have cost us the great victory we have waited so long. Lynx felt ashamed, despondent. Everything Father Cougar was saying was absolutely true. Father Cougar shook his head. Well, there's no helping it now. He turned to the scribe and instructed, Go to the inn, fetch the Templars. The scribe nodded once and hurried off. Lynx felt awe. Templars? Yes, Father Cougar said. They arrived this morning, two of them, pursuing these dogmen you saw. They'll want to question you. Of course, Lynx agreed at once, his shame quickly giving way to excitement. Templars! Holy ones, invincible warriors of Cat! In ages past, their order had eradicated the frogmen, the birdmen, and the monkeymen, and now only the dogmen remained. The scribe returned a short time later, leading the Templars. They were the tallest, most muscular catmen that Lynx had ever seen. Both wore long white tabards, and upon their surcoats were embroidered the holy form of cat. Father Cougar gestured to them. Lynx, these are our Templar friends, Lion and Tiger. The Templars nodded politely. Tiger was brawnier, stern and dignified, with gray in his fur and black stripes around his eyes. Lion had a great tawny mane and seemed almost to vibrate with barely restrained energy. And he was younger, perhaps only five or ten years older than Lynx himself. Lion said quickly, Tell us about these dogmen. So Lynx repeated his story. When he gave a description of the dogmen, the Templars glanced at each other. When he got to the part about his escape from the canyon, the scribe interrupted, Show them your tail. Lynx held up his injured tail. Lion clapped his hands together and said to Tiger, Well, look at that. Bloodied by dogmen and he escaped to tell of it. He turned to Lynx. That's more than many Templars can boast. Lynx felt an almost unbearable rush of pride. Lion said, I've heard enough. He turned to Tiger. Let's find this cave. Father Cougar said, You mean to leave at once? Yes, Lion replied. I see no reason to dally. The dogmen certainly will not. Take me with you, Lynx exclaimed. I'll lead you there. Father Cougar looked worried. That might be dangerous. Your parents, Lynx said, It's my fault for letting the dogmen see me. You have to let me make up for it. No one knows the wasteland like I do. Father Cougar turned to the Templars. I suppose it's up to you. Tiger opened his mouth for the first time. I don't think... Lion spoke over him. Yes, let him come. The dogmen cut him with their swords. He deserves a chance to pay them back in kind. He grinned at Lynx and said, But we'll cut more than just their tails, won't we? Tiger said nothing. Come on, Lion said, and gestured for Lynx to follow. Lynx went with the Templars back to the inn, where they gathered supplies. Lion pulled a short sword out from among his belongings and tossed it to Lynx, who caught it and put it on. Then Lynx led the Templars into the wasteland. The sun was rising by the time they reached the cave. Tiger scouted about, kneeling in places to sniff the earth, then said, This way. The trail led westward, deeper into the wastes. That night the Templars made camp beneath the open sky, and in the morning they continued on again. As far as Lynx knew, no Catman had ever come this far before. His boldness waned, and he started to wonder what he'd gotten himself into. On the third day, the Templars stopped to rest beside a circular black pit a hundred yards across. Thick yellow grass grew all around the pit, 
and vines hung over its edge and into the darkness. There was something eerie and intriguing about the formation. Lynx wondered aloud, Could the dogman be hiding in there? Tiger said, The tracks lead on. Lion shrugged, It can't hurt to check. Call us if you see anything. Lynx wandered over to the pit. Its sides were rough and angular, and he scrambled easily down the many shelves of rock until he reached the cavern floor. Stray beams of sunlight lanced down through the opening overhead and caught the dust that floated in the air. Lynx turned in a slow circle, then stopped as he saw something utterly unexpected. He drew his sword and cried out, Lion! Lion! Half buried in the side of the cave lay a strange object that was bigger than a cottage and made of a silver metal. From the object's side protruded a structure that seemed to be a wing. The object was extraordinarily weathered, and its side was ripped open. That dark gash beckoned to Lynx. He took a step forward, then another. From the cliff wall above, Lion called out, Wait. Lynx glanced back. Lion was climbing down into the cavern. Tiger stood above at the pit's edge. Lion said, What are you doing? Have you ever seen anything like it? Lynx said. I'm going to look inside. He crept nearer. Why? Lion called sharply. I... Lynx was very close now. I just... This is curiosity, Lion warned. This is wrong. It isn't, Lynx insisted, half to himself. Though why it wasn't, he could not really say. He slipped through the gash. For a moment, everything was dark. Then a hundred spots of light, red, blue, yellow, green, flickered to life all around him. He crouched in alarm. He'd never seen anything like these lights, but his attention was quickly drawn away from them and toward a metal coffin that was built into the far wall. Its lid was made of glass, and inside he could make out the rough outline of a body. Suddenly a loud voice spoke, seeming to come from all around. The language was unfamiliar. Lynx whirled but saw no one. The coffin slowly opened. Lynx backed away, cursing himself. Once again his curiosity had betrayed him, had led him to intrude upon the strange tomb, and now he had awoken something ancient and powerful. His fearful imagination conjured up images of a living corpse with blazing red eyes, but what actually emerged was no less surprising. A monkey man. He seemed dazed and was dressed in some gray uniform, his chest and shoulders decorated with insignia. He glanced at Lynx, then staggered past him. Lynx stared in wonder and horror. The monkey men were supposed to have been wiped out centuries ago. A second shape, much smaller, leapt from the coffin, and Lynx gasped as he observed its perfect grace. For all his life he had seen this holy form depicted a thousand times, and now there was no mistaking it. This was the creator of the universe, the giver of all life. Cat, the nine-lived, had returned to earth at last. Lynx kneeled and whispered, My lord. Cat did not acknowledge him, and Lynx was unsure what to do. Through the gash came the voices of the Templars who now stood just outside. Tiger was saying with a mix of fear and awe, It fell from the sky, see? It broke through into this cavern. Lion replied angrily, The dogmen flee and we stand here engaged in idle... He stopped abruptly as the monkey man lurched through the gash and out into the cave. Lynx followed after. The Templars stood awestruck. The monkey man ignored them. He stumbled about studying the damage to his winged tomb. With one hand he grasped his forehead. He still seemed disoriented. Lynx felt disoriented himself. He wandered over to the Templars, tugged Lion's sleeve, and made him look toward the tomb where Cat was just emerging. Lion fell instantly to his knees, and Tiger did the same. Cat ignored them and strode along after the monkey man. Then Cat lay down, reached into a gap between the tomb and the cave floor, and batted his paw at something within. The monkey man grunted at Cat and used the edge of one boot to lightly brush Cat away from the hole. Lion leapt to his feet and cried, You dare! He ran up to the monkey man and seized him by the shoulder. 
The monkey man shoved him back and yelled at him in a strange language. An amulet on the monkey man's belt buzzed. Get your hands off me, Catman scum. Puzzled, the monkey man glanced at the amulet. Then he shouted at Lion, and again his magic amulet translated. Report, what unit are you with, and what the hell are you wearing? Lion backed away. He moved to stand beside Tiger and said in a low voice, A surviving monkey man. He struck me, you saw. I should have the honor of slaying him. The monkey man's amulet spoke in a strange tongue, presumably translating Lion's words. Tiger said, I don't know. He comes to us from the sky as a companion of Cat. Dare we slay him? Lion said, Cat's holy word commands it. Tiger said, Cat himself stands before us now. Everything is changed. Lion glanced at Cat, who sat licking himself. Lion approached him, knelt, and said, My lord, I am Lion, your most faithful servant. I am yours to command. What is your wish for this monkey man? Say the word, and I will spill his blood in your name. Cat lifted his head, gave Lion an inscrutable stare, and went back to licking himself. Lion, still kneeling, glanced at Tiger and hissed, Why does he not answer? Tiger growled softly, It is not our place to question his motives. He will speak when he wills it. Lion turned back to Cat. Answer me, Lord, I beg you, or if you will not, give us some sign that we may do your will. The monkey man seemed to finally shake off his confusion and comprehend the danger. He glanced back and forth between Lion and Cat, then crouched and whistled to Cat and spoke. The amulet translated, Hey, come here. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Come on. Lion said darkly, He presumes to command Cat. The monkey man ignored this and kept calling. Cat gazed at the monkey man, but did not stir. Lion said, Cat rejects him. Wait. The monkey man held up a hand. Just, Leo, come here, damn it. He whistled again. Here, kitty, kitty. Lion reached for his sword and said, He dies. But at that moment, Cat languidly uncurled himself and strolled across the dirt to the monkey man, who scratched Cat's whiskers, then his ears, his neck, and his back. Cat purred and rubbed against the monkey man's shins. Lion froze. Cat shows him favor, Tiger observed. Cat has a special plan for him. The monkey man picked up Cat and held him like a shield. Cat continued to purr. Lion glared at monkey man for a long time, then strode over to him, stood very close, and said softly, I do not know why Cat chooses to prolong your miserable existence, abomination, but let no one say that I was curious. He brushed by him and walked away. The monkey man lowered his head to Cat and whispered, Good Cat. The Cat men set out again, now joined by Cat and his strange monkey man companion. The monkey man brought along a sort of satchel in which he carried Cat, who seemed pleased enough with the arrangement. Lion remained hostile to the monkey man, no matter how often Tiger insisted that the victory was now at hand and that Lion should be rejoicing. The Templars often knelt before Cat and asked him for guidance, but Cat never deigned to reply. Sometimes the monkey man would stare into the amulet, but whatever it told him must have displeased him, for he would shake it, strike it, and yell at it. Lynx was desperate to question the monkey man, but that would be showing curiosity, so instead he tried to mimic the stony indifference of the Templars. Still, Lynx couldn't keep his eyes off of Cat. The monkey man noticed this. Finally, he said, Do you want to hold him? Lynx was stunned. He glanced at the Templars, who were now well ahead. I couldn't. Sure. The monkey man reached into his satchel, lifted Cat free, and handed him over to Lynx, who scratched Cat's ears the way the monkey man had. Cat purred. See, the monkey man said. After a moment, he added, What's your name? Lynx hesitated, then told him. I'm Charles, the monkey man said. Lynx didn't respond. After a moment, the monkey man lowered his voice and said, Tell me, Lynx, what year is this? Lynx was perplexed, but the monkey man seemed earnest. Lynx passed Cat back to him and said slowly, 1293. 
Using what calendar? I don't understand. Dating from when? Why, this was the strangest question Lynx had ever heard. From the creation of the world? The monkey man said nothing for a long time. He and Lynx resumed walking. Finally, the monkey man asked in a low tone, And what is this victory? You really don't know? Cat hasn't told you? The monkey man said, Cat isn't overly fond of explaining himself, as you may have noticed. So Lynx spoke of the victory. When he saw that the monkey man was utterly confused, he found himself explaining more and more. Soon he had gone all the way back to the beginning, back to when Cat had created the world and all its inhabitants, including his most favored creation, Cats, whom Cat had made in his own image. To them alone Cat had granted the gift of speech. But the cats had grown curious about what other animals might say, and so the cats disobeyed and shared the gift of speech with birds, frogs, dogs, and monkeys. But those other animals were wicked and spoke only lies. When Cat returned and saw what had happened, he was very angry and punished those animals, twisting them into catmen, birdmen, frogmen, dogmen, and monkeymen. The catmen wailed and beseeched Cat to restore them to their perfect forms, but Cat decreed that he would not until the catmen had wiped the earth clean of the abominations, any animal who spoke and was not feline. But Cat, in his ultimate mercy, also decreed that this redemption was inevitable, and promised that in the last days he would return to earth to lead the catmen to ultimate glory. Lynx finished. So that is the victory. That is why Cat has come again. But his ways are strange. We did not know that he would be accompanied by a monkey man. The monkey man said, And these dogmen we're pursuing are the last on earth? Perhaps, Lynx said. They are among the last, certainly. And the other monkey men, like me, are all dead, Lynx confirmed, long ago. That night, Lynx was awoken by the sound of the monkey man sobbing softly. Lynx thought, he weeps for his vanquished race. It had not occurred to Lynx that abominations might be capable of such grief. This monkey man was the last of his kind, probably, and in the end, when the victory came, he too would be cleansed from the earth. That made Lynx feel almost sad. He did not get back to sleep for a long time. The Templars tracked the dogmen ever deeper into the wasteland. Supplies were running low, and nothing edible grew here. But Lion said, Good, the dogmen will have the same problem. They'll have to turn and face us. And he was right. The next day, the catmen mounted a low, windswept pass, and Lynx spotted the dogmen waiting amidst a jumble of boulders. The male stood there, holding his great broadsword. The female reached for her rapier, but the male barked at her, and she reluctantly backed away. The male stepped forward, seeming worn and haggard, but for all that he was still even bigger and more imposing than Lynx remembered. Lion sighed. Only two, and one a female. He drew his sword and strode forward. Stay back. I'll handle this. Lynx looked to Tiger. You'll fight alone? Tiger was stoic. He prefers it that way. Why bring me all this way, Lynx said. Why give me a sword if he never meant for me to help? That's just how he is. The monkey man moved to stand beside them. How he is is arrogant and reckless. Why do you endure it? Tiger said softly. You'll see why. Lion closed in on the male, who roared and thrust at him with savage force. Lion parried casually, spun in a crouch, and came up with both fists wrapped around the hilt of his sword. He slammed his fists into his opponent's jowled face, and the male thudded to the ground. Lion kicked away the dogman's sword, and just like that, it was over. Lynx exclaimed, He's amazing. Tiger nodded. He hurried forward, and Lynx and the monkey man followed. Tiger knelt to tie up the male as Lion strode toward the female. She'd drawn her rapier, and as Lion came on, she backed away in a fighting stance, her movements swift and graceful. 
Lion held his sword at his side. She thrust at his throat. Her speed was remarkable, but Lion whipped up his sword and easily blocked the blow. The female backed away, launching a series of feints and attacks. Lion laughed, contemptuous, as he parried each one, but her last thrust deflected off his blade and scratched his shoulder. He glanced at the small circle of blood that blossomed on his white tabard. Not bad. I might have to try. He moved to close with her, but again she slipped away. Tiger looked uneasy. He whispered, At close range he's unstoppable, but he has no patience. The female kept retreating, staying always just beyond the reach of Lion's sword. She attacked again, and again she got through, pricking his other shoulder. He hardly seemed to notice. His expression was dark now. He kept advancing. Link said, We have to help. Tiger hesitated. He would not like that. Lion roared, slashing at the female's head. She backed out of reach, then quickly counterattacked, striking his chest. Three stains now blazed on his tabard. The blood from his shoulder wounds soaked down to his elbows. He seemed to be slowing. Link said, If you won't help him, I will. He drew his short sword and ran in wide arcs that he circled behind the female, then charged her. As he neared, she pivoted and thrust at his face. Lynx ducked and retreated. Instantly, she turned back to Lion, but now he had closed with her, and she was doomed. When she attacked, he locked her wrist and wrenched her sword away. He smashed an elbow into her face and hurled her over his hip. Then Lion was upon her, straddling her, pounding his fists into her face, knocking her head this way and that. Soon she was unconscious, with blood oozing from her muzzle, but the blows kept falling. Lynx murmured, Wait, but Lion ignored him. Finally, Lion stood. His chest wound had bled a red blotch around the holy form of cat that was embroidered on his surcoat. Link said, Are you all right? Lion's eyes were full of fury. I told you to stay back. You could have gotten us both killed. He shoved Link's aside and stormed on past. Tiger came forward and knelt to bind the female. He said, He gets like this. Just let him calm down. It'll be all right. The Templars marched the dogmen east. The prisoners were not spoken to, and when night fell they were bound at wrist and ankle. Tiger took the first watch while Lion dozed. Lynx sat a dozen yards away, off by himself, leaning on a boulder. The monkey man settled down beside him and nodded at the prisoners. So what happens to them now? Lynx said, the Templars will want to show them off, charge money to see them, that sort of thing. The monkey man's voice was soft. You said these might be the last dogmen on Earth. They might, Lynx agreed. And then they'll be executed? Yes. The monkey man caught Lynx's gaze, held it. And you're going to let that happen? Lynx glanced over at Tiger, but the Templar was too far away to hear them. Lynx hissed, Of course. The monkey man said, No one has ever called me squeamish, and I have no love for dogmen, but to wipe out an entire race. That's evil, Lynx. You must know that, whatever some old legend says. You're just a monkey man. You wouldn't understand. I understand more than you can imagine, the monkey man said. I've flown among the stars and slept for ages, and I remember Earth as it was, when monkey men, as you call us, ruled all. We made you, Lynx, you cat men, in our labs, the dog men too, and all the rest. We made you to be soldiers, and I guess we did our jobs too well, because I awake to find that you've beaten us. But that doesn't... This is blasphemy, Lynx said. I warn you, not even Cat's favor will protect you if... What? Him? The monkey man jabbed a thumb toward the satchel where Cat slept. He's an animal, like any other. I raised him from a kitten... Link stood. I should kill you for that. The monkey men glared up at him. Fine. Kill me. Like you killed my race. What have I got to live for? He gestured toward Lion. Rouse your maniac friend there. Tell him to chop off my head. He'd like that. And would you? I thought you were different. Link scowled and stomped away. 
He sat down beside Tiger, who asked, What's wrong? Link said furiously, Nothing. Tiger glanced at the monkey man, then said, Monkeys lie. That's why they should never have been granted the gift of speech. Lynx crossed his arms and agreed. Yes, they lie. For the next two days, Lynx refused to speak to the monkey man, but doubts gnawed at him. Much as he hated to admit it, the monkey man was right about one thing. Lynx was different from the Templars. He had always thought of himself as faithful, but traveling with them had made him see just how shallow and perfunctory his belief really was. Lion's faith was like fire and gave intensity to everything he did though it was a fire that was raging out of control that would someday consume him. And Tiger's faith was like a mountain, immense, solid, and immovable. But Lynx realized that his own faith was more like the wasteland itself, existing only in the absence of anything else. The monkey man's briefly spatted heresies made sense to Lynx in a way that the wisdom of Father Cougar never really had. That afternoon, Lynx found himself walking for a moment beside the female. Before he could stop himself, he blurted out, "'You fought well,' She looked up, startled to be spoken to. What? Lion was off ahead of them. Tiger was back a ways out of earshot. Link said softly, The other day, you fought well. I think you would have beaten him if I hadn't interfered. Beaten a Templar? You should be proud of that. Oh, she said puzzled. Thank you. Sure, Link said awkwardly and hurried off. The monkey man sidled up from behind him. Why did you do that? Link's maintained a stony silence for a moment, then said, I... I was just... Curious, the monkey man said. Lynx sighed. The monkey man added, Curiosity is no sin. If you're not curious, you'll never learn. That's blasphemy, Lynx said, but his tone was flat. The monkey man didn't respond. After a time, Lynx said, Even if I agreed with you, about the dogman, I mean, what can I do? The monkey man whispered, You can pretend to be asleep tonight, and when I create a distraction, you can crawl over to the dogman and cuff their bonds and let them escape. Lynx was startled. I didn't mean... I know. The monkey man gave him a thin smile. But think about it. I'll create the distraction. What you do then is up to you. Wait, Link said. This was too much. What sort of distraction? You'll see. Your little outburst the other night gave me an idea. Link's considered this. During whose watch? Whose do you think? Lions, of course. He was by far the more easily distracted. Think about it, the monkey man repeated, and fell behind again. As night came on, the Templars made camp atop a low hill. Tiger slumbered and Lynx pretended to. He still couldn't decide whether to help the dogmen. After several hours, he heard movement and peeked out one eye. The monkey man came up to stand behind Lion and said, You seem like the religious type. Lion turned to him. Do not mock me, monkey man. Lion was now facing away from Lynx and the prisoners. The monkey man sat down on a stone. Not at all. I just thought you might be interested in some of the religious ideas of the monkey man. The chattering of abominations does not interest me. Lion began to turn away. Wait, the monkey man said. For example, did you know that many monkey men believe that they were made in the image of the creator of the universe? Lion laughed at that. Did they ever look in a mirror? Surely they could not believe that the creator of the universe was so ungainly and absurd. The monkey man shrugged. Others had another idea about how they came to be. It was called evolution by natural selection. Lion's back was still turned. Lynx glanced at the prisoners. He thought he could crawl to them without attracting attention. If he was caught at this, the Templars would kill him. And what if Father Cougar was right about Cat and the victory and all of it? Lynx stared at the female. He was impressed by her, liked her, though they'd barely spoken. He didn't want to see her die. If he helped her escape, the Catman would have other opportunities to apprehend her if necessary. But if she died, 
He began to crawl toward her. Lion was saying, Even if that were possible, it would take thousands of years. Millions, the monkey man corrected. The world is not that old. Well, these monkey men had some ideas about that, too. The female's eyes were wide as Lynx crawled up beside her. He glanced over her shoulder at Lion, who was absorbed in the argument. Lynx drew the short sword and whispered, If I set you free, will you swear to run away and never come back, and never trouble any catman ever again? She stared at him a moment, then nodded quickly. All right. Lynx sliced her bonds, then squirmed over to the male to cut those ropes, too. Lion exclaimed, That is heresy! The monkey man replied, That is fact. Lion stood up. He towered over the monkey man and said, Take it back! I'm just telling you what... Silence! Lion used the back of his fist to strike the monkey man across the face, knocking him to the dirt. Lynx freed the male, and together the prisoners began to crawl off. Lion drew his sword and strode toward the monkey man, who sprang up and backed away. Lion said, Come here. No, get away from me. The monkey man turned and stumbled down the hill, and Lion went after him. Lynx thought, Lion will kill him. The monkey man knew this would happen. He knew he was sacrificing himself. Lynx glanced at the prisoners, who were now on their feet and hurrying away. Lion and the monkey man were soon lost in the darkness, but Lynx could hear them cursing. He considered waking Tiger, who might restrain Lion, but Tiger might also notice the prisoners fleeing. Then the monkey man let out an anguished wail, and Tiger opened his eyes. Lynx had no choice. He cried, Tiger! The Templar reached for his sword. What? Lynx pointed. Lion, he's gone crazy! Tiger leapt up and Lynx followed. As they reached the bottom of the hill, Lion stepped from the shadows. Tiger shouted, What have you done? Lion was smug. The monkey man blasphemed with every word. I have silenced him. No, Lynx thought, hurrying forward, scanning the ground for a corpse. But the monkey man was alive, weeping, kneeling over the smashed remains of his magic amulet. There was a gash over his brow, and his eyes were forlorn as he uttered a string of gibberish. Lion had spared the monkey man's life, but now there wasn't a single being on earth that the monkey man could talk to. Lynx said, I'm so sorry, Charles. At the sound of his name, the monkey man looked up. Charles, he repeated. He took a deep breath, wiped his eyes, and rose to his feet. Lynx took him by the arm, and they hugged back up the hill. They entered the camp just behind Tiger, who said, Where are the prisoners? Lion looked stricken. He glanced about. Tiger cursed. He ran across the camp and stared off down the far side of the hill. Nothing. They're gone. I. Lion hesitated. Then he pointed to the monkey man. It's his fault. His fault, Tiger raged. Was it his job to watch the prisoners, or was it yours? Lion stomped away, then turned back and glared at the monkey man. He knows something. Maybe, Tiger said. No one's ever freed themselves from my ropes before. We could question him, if you hadn't silenced him. Lion scowled. Tiger gathered up some belongings. It won't matter. We'll catch the dogmen again, and we'll have the truth from their own lips. His tone was grim, and we'll take no more chances. No more prisoners. The dogmen die. The catmen walked all through the night and at dawn they came upon a shallow cave in which the dogmen were huddled together, sick and weary. The Templars strode forward, drawing their swords and advancing on the dogmen who stood to meet them. The male pounded his meaty fist into his palm, a futile gesture of defiance. The dogmen were unarmed and would be slaughtered. Lynx and the monkey man watched helplessly. But then Lynx called out, Wait! Tiger paused and glanced back. Lynx said, Let Cat judge them. Lion sneered, Cat's feelings toward dogmen are well known. Then what's the harm? Tiger thought this over. He lowered his blade. All right. Lynx approached the monkey man who was confused. Lynx nodded at the satchel, and the monkey man got the idea. He lifted Cat free and set him down on the ground. Lynx knelt. My lord, we have need of your wisdom. What is your wish for these dogmen? 
Please, give us a sign. Cat looked up at Lynx and said nothing. Lion growled, Why trouble Cat with this? He has already decreed death for all dogmen, long ago. Lynx stood up and took a step back. He called gently, Here, kitty, kitty. Lion said, What are you doing? Lynx backed up until he stood between the dogmen. Then he crouched and called, Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Cat continued to stare. Lynx said to the dogmen, Come on, like this. He added softly, Please, just try. After a moment, the female bent down and called, Here, kitty, kitty. The male did the same. Lion was outraged. What is this? But sure enough, Cat stirred. He picked his way across the ground until he stood before Lynx and the dogmen. Lynx reached out and scratched between Cat's ears, and Cat purred. The female stroked Cat's back. Cat wound among Lynx and the dogmen and rubbed against their legs. The Templars stood stunned. Tiger intoned, Cat shows them favor. Lion said, No, the cat I serve shows no mercy to dogmen. Tiger gestured, Look. It's some trick, Lion said. This... This is not cat. It cannot be. Maybe this is one of the cats who... That is heresy, Tiger warned. The cats were transformed into catmen. All of them. Lynx cried out, Cat returns to Earth with a new message of peace. No, Lion shouted. No, Cat the Eternal does not change his mind. Tiger turned away and sheathed his sword. Lion stared at him in horror. What are you doing? I will not stand against the incarnation. Lion was shocked. What? Tiger said, I must think on all this. He stared coldly over his shoulder at the dogmen and said to them, You have a reprieve from me, for now. He began to walk away. To Lion, he said, Do as you like. Lion looked all around, at Cat, at the dogmen, at the monkey man. Finally, Lion shot Lynx a withering glare, then followed after Tiger. Lynx waited until the Templars were a good distance off. Then he let out a long sigh of relief. He thought to himself, I can't believe it. We won. But his gladness was tempered by apprehension. The Templars would return, and even if they didn't, they'd spread their tail. What would Father Cougar think, or Lynx's parents? And what would become of Cat and the Monkey Man and the Dog Man now? Others would come seeking them, he knew. For a moment, the group all watched each other, uncertainly. Then the Monkey Man laughed. He stepped forward and introduced himself to the male, Charles, and then again to the female, Charles. She glanced at Lynx, who gave her a bemused smile and shrugged. Cat purred and rubbed against Lynx's shins. In that moment, he felt a bit of hope. If they all just stuck together, he thought, things might work out in the end. He bent down and petted Cat and scratched his chin. He whispered, Good cat. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There you go. Thank you, David. Thank you, John, Lightspeed, and Roger. Great production, great story. Thank you so much. Next up is our good friend, Mr. Jeff Carlson, with a story called Pressure. Jeff is probably the up-and-coming top thriller writer to take the place of Michael Crichton. He has had Plague Year, Plague War, and Plague Zone. 
He's currently at work on a new standalone thriller, as well as collaborating with New York Times bestselling author David Brain on an adventure a novel entitled Connolly High. He's been on Starships over a couple of times, and we've got a great intro by him as well. He's also been on the Sofa Notes as well, so if you want to listen to Jeff, pop over to the Sofa Notes. Jeff! Hey, it's Jeff Carlson again. I'm back on Starship Sofa. I'm here today to talk about my short story, Pressure, which I'm going to go ahead and say it. Pressure is one of my favorite short stories that I've ever written. Um, I like to think that it's a high concept idea. It's a little bit dark, like a lot of the stuff that I do. And it's also been one of my most successful short stories. It's been reprinted in Israel. Uh, I'll be coming out in Romania. It's been reprinted a couple times here in the U.S. And now it is an audio story, courtesy, again, of Starship Sofa. I don't have a whole lot to say about this story because, you know, I hate to give too much away. But the interesting thing about this story is this is one of those rare pieces that I wrote. I woke up from a nightmare. I was just having like this psychotic nightmare because I'm a disturbed individual. Um, you'll like this. Sometimes when I go to sleep, there was a time when I was typing so much, I felt like I was maybe developing some carpal tunnel. So I'd go to sleep wearing braces to make sure that my, you know, my hands were in the appropriate position while I was asleep. I also sleep with a mouth guard because I grind my teeth, something fierce, which is really bad for your gums and also isn't, you know, great for the molars that you're grinding down. And I also sleep with earplugs because I have very good hearing and the slightest noise will wake me up. And my wife is likes to joke that if, you know, if I could just sleep with one of those face masks to block out the light, which I can't because they make me crazy. But if I could just put on the mask, too, I would be fully armored up. You know, my subconscious is a war zone. And every night I've got to go in there. Tonight we'll be diving deep into the subconscious of Jeff Carlson. Be sure you're wearing your Kevlar body armor. Um, so I was having this crazy nightmare and I woke up, I don't remember whether, you know, I was having a head cold or something and I was having this crazy dream and it's the opening of the short story where this guy who has been surgically modified so that he can perform deep sea underwater construction, you know, obviously if it's deep sea, it's underwater, right? What am I talking about? Um, but he's been, he's been surgically and otherwise modified so that he can, you know, most, most normal divers, you max out around 300 feet. Well, this is set in a in a in a semi dark near future where we're trying to get as much you know green power as possible because there's been a limited nuclear exchange between Korea, Japan, and the U.S., um, which isn't good for the atmosphere among other things. And anyway, they're trying to build deep sea turbines. We you know which you would just build basically on like a continental shelf or off you know off the shore of an island. And as the tides come in and the tides come out, they just naturally spin these turbines. They're doing stuff like this over in Europe. Uh, it would be expensive, but if you could do it right, it would basically it wouldn't last forever. You'd have to maintain it, but it would last a long time. And it's just I mean it's perfectly clean energy. I mean, you might chop up a few fish now and then. Um, and I, and this is just a, a cool little idea that I had. I'm like, oh, we could be building these turbines. And what if we could surgically modify somebody so that they could go down there? You wouldn't have to be doing it with remote operated vehicles and cranes and stuff. You could send down some divers. And anyway, I had this dream and, and I, this is where this all began. I woke up and in my dream, it was like, like my sinus cavity had been removed and opened and they had put like, there had been machinery in there. I probably had a head cold or something like that. And I woke up and I thought, I thought, man, what was that all about? And I, I scribbled it down. I'm like, I was having this crazy dream and I just kind of had this little idea and I scribbled out my little notes. And a week later, I came back to it and started fleshing it out. And then I, you know, built the character around that and then proceeded to build, you know, the backstory with this limited nuclear exchange and why it would be so important to do, you know, this green energy, um, you know, because we're running out of oil and solar isn't an option anymore because, you know, the sky is full of dust. 
and debris and all this great stuff. Um, and again, with the, I don't want to give too much of the story away. You would have to be, oh, I remember what I wanted to say. I wanted to point out that I did write this story before the Peter Watts Starfish books came out. Um, I do get email occasionally saying, you know, wow, you know, this is a cool story, but you clearly ripped it off from old Peter Watts. Read those books. I dig them. My short story was out on Strange Horizons, you know, before the Starfish books. Um, so, I mean, there's only like the vaguest similarities between uh, the Watts books, which are like, man, talk about dark, dark, but fun. But the similarity between his novels and my short story is that, I mean, you would have to be a pretty strange individual, you know, like emotionally and in, uh, sociologically psychotically to, um, you know, to agree to undergo this surgery and then be operating down there in the darkness alone. And you'd only be able to see with sonar and, you know, there'd be all kinds of problems with communication. How would they, you know, radio to you up and down through the dense salt water and all this great stuff. So you would be alone. You'd have to have a loner. And uh, so, and I built this whole story around this guy who is, you know, kind of weird. And of course it's got the cool title. And anyway, I'm just babbling. I get excited about what I do. Um, I would encourage everybody to jump by my website where you can actually read the text of Pressure for Free, along with another short story and excerpts of my novels, the Plague Year Trilogy. There's videos, there's contests. I'm maintaining a blog. I am like, I'm like Joe 21st Century now. I'm on YouTube. I'm on podcasts. I have a blog. I just, you know, woo. It's crazy. Jverse.com. J as in Jeff, versus in universe. I hope to see you there. Thank you guys at Starship Sofa for having me on again. It's been fun. Jeff, thank you so much. Today's story is narrated by Jeff Michelli. Jeff is a computer security and forensic geek living in South Louisiana. He does voiceovers for commercials, podcasts and the like. Spends much of his spare time playing around with home automation gadgets. Jeff's been on a couple of times on Starship Sofa and Jeff got this story literally probably minutes ago. It was that close to the edge and he came through and what a great narration. Jeff, thank you so much. So Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present Pressure by Jeff Carlson. They said I wouldn't feel a thing, but my dreams were awful. Pain and tightness, smothering weight, none of which overcame my excitement. I also dreamed of flying, dreamed that I dove right through the ground and smashed into a spectacular new universe. Yet I caught only glimpses of brightness before my eyes ruptured and abrasive rock crammed through my mouth and sinus cavities. The mind persists in making sense of things, even when drugged and unconscious. It remembers. Waking was the real nightmare. I had no face. I weighed too little, and raw swelling in my throat choked my voice. The bite of a needle on one leg helped center me, even before the tranquilizer took hold. I stopped thrashing and understood... I was submerged in a tank not much larger than myself. I knew it was a horizontal rectangle. Knew I was in the middle, yet I had no eyes. Could my hearing be acute enough to measure distance? There wasn't time to sort through my senses. The ponderous blood weight of the tranquilizer could not subdue the breathing reflex, and I dug at the water with every limb, moving up, up. A hard ceiling punched into the smooth metal protrusions of my face before I reached a surface. There was no air, but I could not drown. I snorted water through the generous filter plate where my nose had been, then expelled a shocking pocket of liquid through the gills beneath my armpits. For a moment, I did nothing more than breathe. 
feeling each exhalation against my elbows. I almost touched my face, hesitated, then grew interested in my hands and brought them together. The index fingers and thumbs felt no different, but my other digits were thicker, longer, webbed. Garcia? Senstrom's voice was too loud in the VLF transceiver buried high in my cheekbone, distorted by the mumble of other people around him. How do you feel? I thought I heard the vibrations of his enthusiastic tone directly as well, dulled by the water and walls of my tank. They told me the recovery tank would be glass, and I imagined his entire research team all around my naked body, bristling with recorders and palm tops, every face intent. Andrea had always giggled when we skinny-dipped together, watchful for neighbors, but emboldened by each other's daring, in the early days when we lived at her parents' house in San Diego, before she got pregnant. Shark, she'd whisper, and grab for me, I can be a pensive son of a bitch, and her teasing, her smiles, had always been what I needed most. The thought of her now helped me ignore my embarrassment. My scrotum had been tucked away, my penis shortened. Protective measures that Senstrom's people swore were reversible, like all of the surgeries and implants. I had that in writing, and an eight-figure insurance policy to back it. But there's not a man in the world who wants to be cut in that area, no matter what the compensation. Garcia! Senstrom raised his volume painfully. Answering, I almost swallowed a mouthful of water. Despite all of my training, subvocalizing into a throat mic was very different after the changes reinforcing my mouth and neck. Eating would be a chore. I croaked. Drop volume. Senstrom was apologetic. Is this better? Down, down. Lots. You're more sensitive than we expected, apparently. Any other immediate difficulties? I kicked through a tight somersault. Feel great. My pride was my savior, my source of endurance. I spent the longest five weeks of my life in that tank in a deeper pool, healing, testing, practicing. My feet and toes had been augmented, much like my hands. My thighs shortened to maximize the available muscle. I was damned quick. Relearning construction techniques with my new fingers was sometimes frustrating, yet my progress was real, and those periods of solitary labor became important to me. At the surface, in the shallows, doctors poked and prodded and put me through redundant tortures. I had been warned that the study of my new body would be extensive, and I did my best not to fear or hate them but I'd never imagined such intense scrutiny. During my years as a SEAL, I had been like a bug under a microscope, constantly evaluated and scored. Here I was, the microscope, my body the only lens through which they could measure their work. Senstrom tried to be my buddy, as he always tried, joking and asking what I'd do with the money. Yet his possessiveness was obvious. We'll be famous, he said. We'll change the world. I wasn't a slave or a pet, exactly, but I was anxious to get started, to get away from them. The project had almost selected someone else, a loud mouth much better at politicking than me, but the job would mostly be done alone. They must have thought he'd break without an audience. I'm sure my Navy files indicated no problems of that nature. I'm the private type, happiest diving or surfing with my laughing Andrea 
or teaching our boys to swim. Feeling my heartbeat, finding the perfect ride, the perfect moment, away from other people and their squabbles and protest marches. I've never understood the urge to merge, never wanted to add my opinions to the bumbling stew of e-media or buy five minutes of fame on iBio. For me, a mob holds no power, no point. Running in circles won't improve the economy, clean the environment, or affect the East Asian guerrilla wars in any way. Hard work is the answer. Honor. Persistence. A willingness to take risks. The project offered all that, and more. I had to relearn to chew and swallow. A slow process, but strangely more flavorful. Senstrom said that was only because of the premium foods they'd secured for me. But I had eaten well occasionally in the past, and decided my improved palate must be a side effect of the surgeries that had strengthened my jaw and lips. Could taste buds be sensitized? Learning to see again was also a challenge. From old research with dolphins and orcas, Senstrom knew better than to surround me with smooth walls. Many of those captives had gone insane over time. That wasn't a concern here, but they didn't want my brain to establish its new neural patterns in wrong or confused ways. Before activating my sonar receptors, which used ultra-low frequencies far below my improved range of hearing, they put me in the deeper, irregularly shaped pool. It was beautiful. I'd lost color, but the textures were vivid, stark, each shape imposing. My receptors could also see normally, but had no better than 20 over 600 vision in that mode, which I'd use only for close-up work and to read instrumentation. I chose complete blindness when calling my family. Rather than face a show phone, I'd let a computer read and type for me. My throat might patched into a voter. Site management had encouraged me to limit our exchanges to text only, which was easier to encrypt. And who knew what seven- and four-year-old boys would make of some stiff-mouthed monster claiming to be their father. Brent had only stopped referring to me as stepdad a short time ago, and Roberto was still young enough to forget me. The portrait we had done before I left was not an image that I wanted to disturb, even though I had been caught in mid-blink and Andrea's smile looked forced. Too large. "'I'm doing great, hun. And how are the boys?' I asked. Her response came in stuttering groups of syllables, all emotion masked by the machine. I used part of the advance money to buy a defender for our apartment. It almost seemed like she was having a different conversation. "'Why bother?' I asked. The house should be ready soon. Smart alarms cost thousands of dollars. Just a speck of what I'd earn. But the money was supposed to last the rest of our lives. We're still here in the meantime, she said. The boys gave me no chance to brood over the resentment that seemed so clear in her words. Maybe I only imagined it. Are you in the ocean yet? How far down can you go? One of them babbled, without first identifying himself. And the other said, Greenpeace rated you a top ten on the widecast yesterday. Brent and Roberto both took after their mother, rambunctious little monkeys, and they gave me the praise and enthusiasm I'd expected. I hadn't realized that Brent could type so fast. The voter spoke his questions much more smoothly than anything Andrea had sent. Somehow, technical sketches of my surgeries and gear had leaked onto the net. I even had a fan clubs with names like Cyborg.org and Zemerman. The boys had hoped for an exclusive, and I decided it was better to play along and celebrate my alienness. I promised to bring them both mementos when I returned. By then, security should have loosened enough for me to take home a few small bits of hardware, something for them to put on a shelf or carry in their pockets.
When Andrea came back on, she was encouraging, but brief. Six hundred four to go, the voter said for her, but I didn't know how to answer. I had lost track of the days left until my contract was up, knowing how long it would be. Love you, I rasped, and the computer carried my inadequate words away. Mapping the ocean floor was the greatest thrill of my life. Most people probably would have considered it tedious, gliding through a quiet, monochromatic world. But then the only way to get a rise out of most people is to batter them with kaleidoscopes of music, breasts, and talking heads, or to turn off the net and TV. The worst riots always occurred during the rotating brownouts. Oil and coal were fast becoming memories, and incredible advances in solar power had come to nothing. Due to the greenhouse clouds and the montage of dirt thrown into the atmosphere by the Nine Days' War, with tens of thousands of people still sick from radiation poisoning, no politician would even mention new nuclear plants, and hydroelectric, biomass, and wind generators weren't enough to keep civilization chugging along without interruption. Arrow Corp had the answer. For months now, crews had been scouting various locales with buoys and remote-operated vehicles. The tiny Japanese island of Miyakijima. Dead south of Tokyo Bay, was deemed perfect for political as well as economic reasons. Miyakijima belonged to an underwater ridge that extended from the Japanese mainland directly into the Pacific Current, and its steep southern slope offered more powerful updrafts in addition to the normal ocean tides. Arrowcorp planned to build a field of turbines as deep as 500 feet, using cutting-edge technologies like me. Normal divers max out at 300 feet and can't remain there long in any case. My surgeries eliminated the need for air tanks. More importantly, a gel solution had been suffused through my bloodstream and organs to protect me from compression. In addition to performing final hands-on site inspections, I was also conducting field tests of myself. Before creating other mods, Aerocorp wanted to see if unforeseen problems would arise—physical, mental, or emotional. I was glad for the test period. In three months, I would become a teacher and a foreman. Caged by responsibility. Meanwhile, I explored natural altars of rock and coral, spread my arms to ride rip currents, and chased quick clouds of fish. One morning, I caught a yellowtail. Its buttery flavor was complemented well by sour kelp, and I began to forage instead of eating from the tubes of my food belt, secretly, truly making myself a part of this environment. The work itself was more fun than difficult. Placing beacons and running spot checks on our communications net, the attenuation of radio waves is very high in salt water, even for the military band VLF signals that Aerocorp had leased from the U.S. Navy. They wanted to be sure they could always reach me, but there were dead areas within the construction zone. During the first twenty days, we added five more relays than they'd originally allowed for in their budget: three on the sea floor, plus two additional surface buoys whose anchoring tethers also functioned as antenna. The grid was set. The smaller boats that had helped me through this initial stage were replaced by a barge, capable of lowering heavier and larger gear. The first steel cradles for the turbine mounts were coming down. For a country that had been almost entirely nuclear-powered for decades, Japan had a wretched safety record, averaging two and a half accidents per year. Worse, loss of containment at eleven reactors during the war had done more damage than North Korean missiles. They were desperate for a solution. Aerocorp hoped to rev up a quad of turbines as soon as possible, not so much to offset costs, 
but to prove to critics and investors that the idea was fundamentally sound. The complete project, involving hundreds of turbines, channelers, land-based transformers, wouldn't be finished for four years. And, of course, AeroCorp hoped construction would continue for most of the century as they developed other locations around the globe. I worked nine- and ten-hour shifts, sometimes arguing with Stenstrom when he wanted me to come in. I'm no hero. I was angling for a bonus. My gung-ho attitude was also based on the fact that my camp on the lee side of Miyaki held little appeal. Sleep was always welcome, but any messages that the boys had sent tended to make me feel lonely, and then there was nothing to do but wait and brood, composing inarticulate letters to Andrea that I usually deleted. I was tired when my robot tug brought me to deeper water east of the island. We'd completed inspection of the last sites a week early, and the engineers wanted backup options. As I kicked away from the tug, a familiar thrill shot through my exhaustion. Beyond this shelf, the C4 plunged away for miles. This place was like another planet, strange and new. And I was the very first. The squid didn't hesitate. Its only predators were much larger and shaped differently than me. As I drifted into range, holding a small mapping computer to my face, the giant latched onto my left elbow and biceps with its two longer, grasping tentacles. Just weeks before, I might have yelled. But in this world, there was nobody who could come to help. I tried to kick away. No good. Its eight regular arms spread in a horrible ash-yellow blossom. When I switched to sonar, the squid seemed even larger backed by a spotty rising cloud of silt. I dropped my computer, bumping one of the squid's closing arms. It hesitated, grabbing the small device, but at the same time, a pair of stronger tentacles around my left arm reflexively increased their grip. My armor tore open. So did the softer muscle beneath. Blood squirted out in diffused threads, and I was lucky not to suffer a stroke, but too frantic to realize it at the time. Ah... My flechette gun was holstered on my left forearm, beneath the tentacles. I groped for the knife strapped to my leg, but another of the squid's arms brushed my foot, then seized hold, and I yanked my free hand away before it was also trapped. Garcia! Garcia! Senstrom's voice felt like part of the adrenaline pulse throbbing through my head. I kicked, not away from the squid, but into it, winning slack from its tentacles. Using this moment of freedom to twist sideways, its arms closed in, my face and left arm led towards the monster's hard, gaping beak. Then my free hand found the gun and squeezed off three-quarters of a magazine, tearing open the back of my left ring finger. The squid nearly exploded. Its shattered beak seemed to keep opening, spilling flecks of torn innards. The convulsing tentacles yanked my shoulder from its socket and peeled away more armor and skin, but another burst of flechettes freed me, and I swam away. The current made restless ghosts of its gore and mine. Consciousness faded into a glimmer, but the thought of sharks kept me swimming. I don't remember the ride, or the hammerheads that came after me. The shouting in my cheekbone, that much I recall. Stenstrom's panic was too intimate to forget. Trying to reload the flechette gun with one functional arm, while clinging to the tug, was a monumental task. They say I did it twice, which must be why it seemed like I never finished. The sea is no place for the weak or wounded. Andrea never wanted me to volunteer. Not because of any danger, or even because of what they do to me, but because it would take so long. We'd argued before, like all couples, 
Silly stuff like who was supposed to take out the garbage. And we'd had bitter discussions after she got pregnant. At the time, I was just 27. After 10 years in the strict, almost exclusively male world of special forces, and I had not proven myself excellent family material by butting heads with her son Brent. But until I told her I needed to leave, we had always found a compromise. She let me name our baby after the father I'd never known, and I agreed to be more lenient with Brent, let him choose his own friends and music and clothes. We'd never shouted before. She'd never cried before. We don't need this, she said. But we did. If we wanted to give Roberto and Brent the education they'd need, if we ever expected to live someplace where sirens and knifings weren't regular affairs, a chance like this was too fat to pass up. The politicians said the recession had ended in 17, but that was news to us. The scuba guide business I'd started after I got out of the Navy failed almost immediately. I should have known better. The tourist trade had been flat for years, and my competition, already well-established, gobbled up what little income there was to be had. We weren't destitute. Andrea subbed as a math teacher whenever she could. We both did spot work for the park service, and I made wages on the docks as a mechanic and welder. But I missed the simple vacations we'd taken in the early days, surfing, kayaking. To be reduced to a life of debt, coupons, and freebies was hardly a life at all. The real horror had been the resentment with which I'd begun to view my family for needing so much I couldn't give. On the day before I left, Andrea argued that I'd undervalued my soul. Two years, she kept saying. Don't leave us alone for two years. We'll talk every week, I promised. Two years, Carlos. The boys won't even recognize you. Stenstrom opted for a swimsuit when he visited, which was all that I was wearing. To perform their repairs and let me heal, the doctors had turned me into something of a surface creature again, enclosing my head in a large plastic sphere that piped in salt water, placing me on a table lined with gutters to collect my liquid exhalations. Keeping my skin damp was more complicated. The mist ducts tended to fog the room, so the doctors wore aprons and goggles and long yellow gloves. Stenstrom had a better grasp of psychology than that. "'What can I do for you?' he asked, not bothering with "'How are you?' or "'Hello.' "'Sorry, Chief.' "'My fault. We should have ordered you to quit for the day. It's not like we were running late.' His laugh was a goofy bird squawk that sounded fake the first time you heard it. But he was just a geek, desk-belly, pale, with his fingers constantly in his hair or at his nose. "'Seriously,' he said. "'Anything at all?' Someone to read to me. Someone pretty. She can be friendly, too, if you like. I would have thought he'd be too embarrassed. I was surprised to find that I was myself. Maybe I'd spent too much time alone out there. My next thought was of my marriage vows, and guilt arrived late. But my first reaction was the honest one. I was basically a cripple here, and the idea of being manipulated did not excite me at all. I'd much rather masturbate caressed and tumbled by the sea, by myself, with favorite memories of my wife. "'Someone to read,' I repeated. Stenstrom nodded. "'What do you like? Oceanography and biology, right?' Standing up, he patted the table rather than jarring me. "'I'll have someone come in.' It was awfully cynical, but I couldn't help but think that he was improving at trying to make himself my friend." I contacted Andrea then, 
days ahead of the schedule we'd set, despite an earlier decision not to worry her. Stenstrom was right. I needed friendly female attention, and I didn't have to tell her that I'd been hurt. She wasn't home, though it was dinner time. Brent answered and said she was substituting at the community college. It made me angry. I didn't understand why she'd bother with such a low-paying job, especially since she must be incredibly busy, settling into the new house, helping the boys adjust to new schools. But of course Andrea enjoyed teaching, and maybe the fact that we were rich didn't seem real to her yet. Maybe it was good I missed her. Our exchanges had not been going well, and I might have said something stupid. Maybe communicating over such a distance, through typed words alone, was impossible. The boys didn't think so. During my recuperation, they peppered me with messages full of abbreviations and icons that my computer and I puzzled over. They were obviously spending more time online than they had with me around, learning new languages and modes of thought. I was pleased that they remained excited about my accomplishments, but Roberto seemed overly attached to a new interactive he'd discovered, and Brent confessed, maybe bragged, that he had been caught in two stim sites. I admonished them both to finish their schoolwork as soon as possible each day. Put the keyboard away. Get outside. Go play in the mud, I said. Returning to the ocean was unspeakably good, but my days grew more complicated as I coordinated with surface traffic. Massive barges that probed the quiet dark with fat, long, phallic drills, blundering through ancient beds of sediment, polluting vast stretches of water with their shrieking as they powered down into the detrius and carbonate. New voices sprang out of my cheekbone, crowding my skull, and four new mods had come through surgery and would soon join me. This was ultimately what I'd signed on for, and I took close note of each shift's accomplishments but the joy that it gave me was purely intellectual, and I clocked out with the surface crews rather than working overtime. The best part of each day was making my way to and from my shelter, alone, letting the currents and whim dictate my course, always discovering new beauty, new peace. I think I knew what was happening back home. Most of Brent's chatter washed over me like a familiar, soothing tide. Club VR opened a new place downtown and I got to Vert Gladiator and I could have done it twice except Uncle Mark is a bracket colon equal sign. The computer had grown better at recognizing icons, but Brent used so many. This one meant flathead, I guessed, or chicken neck, or whatever. What concerned me was his tone. Brent had once directed this same mean jealousy at me. Who is Uncle Mark? I croaked the elongated fingers of my hand tightening into a ball. I hit the send button with a fist. What the hell is going on? I shouted, as six hours later when I finally got Andrea online. After all I'm doing for you. Her response was immediate. You did it for yourself. I stared at the shape of the computer as if it were another squid, my thoughts layered and conflicting. For the fame, she continued. The adventure. For the money, Andrea. I'm doing it for the money. Would you have let them cut you up if they were going to turn you into a desk, Carlos? You did it for the chance to finally be a fish. Its prow into the wind and waves, the barge lowered two turbines on cables, one off of each side. Just hoisting the house-sized cylinders from the deck, and hitting the water had taken two slow, exacting hours. 
The descent itself required five more. During snags and rest breaks, I inspected the squat towers that would cradle the turbines, darting under and around their angled beams, even though we'd already completed our structural tests. But there was no escaping my thoughts. Leaving now, quitting now, would be crazy. Reverse surgery and rehab would take almost a quarter of the time left in my contract, and I'd forfeit everything but the signing bonus. We'd lose the home, our future, find ourselves back in the city, scrambling for wages, and I would never work for Aerocorp again, in any capacity. Even their competitors would have no reason to rely on me. A hard truth that always led me back to the same worry. Can I ever trust her again? The weather had been cooperating, but even 19-ton hunks of metal will act like sails in deep currents. And close to sundown, we realized there had been a miscalculation. Some pendulum swinging had been accounted for. It was a drop of 400 feet. But instead of a near-simultaneous mounting, we had a double miss. Each elevator platform had jets which I could use for final adjustments, but they weren't powerful enough to muscle the turbines 20 meters against the current. We're 20 east, I said. Let's elevate 10, bring them back up. The nearest turbine was a smooth sculpture caught in a web of cables that led upward as far as my sonar reached. ROVs, remote-operated vehicles, scooted about or hovered patiently nearby. And when I switched briefly to my fuzzy, nearsighted normal vision, the busy sea became busier, shot through with the ROV's beams of light. All of this generated surprisingly little noise. The whirring of ROV props, the harp vibrations of the current against the cables... The first explosion sounded like God had slapped the surface, a bass thunder that reached me in an instant after the VLF net surged with voices. Was that the engine? Fire! Fire! Number two cranes lost all exterior cables! The last bit of information I personally witnessed as the turbine sagged in its web. If it fell, it would roll into the cradle tower and ruin weeks of hard labor. I swam closer, thinking I might use the platform jets to keep it afloat or ease it to the bottom. But two ROVs tumbled into my path as their operators lost contact. I kicked left. One struck my scarred shoulder and numbed my arm. I had been assigned an emergency frequency to connect me directly to Stenstrom. Would he be there? The way the ROVs had shut down, the comm room might have been destroyed. I said, This is Garcia. He was near panic. Can you stabilize number two? I'm on it. What's happening? We're under attack. Speedboats. They're wide-casting some animal earth crap. Three small cylinders landed into the far range of my sonar, moving fast. Smart torps. They were beautiful in the way that sharks can be, sleek and purposeful. A hard swarm of warheads chased by their own turbulence. I probably wouldn't attract their attention, not being a power source or made of metal. Not much metal but the concussive force of a detonation anywhere nearby would kill me. I dug and kicked down. Down. Tightness in my bad arm made my effort lopsided, slowing me. The buzzing torps grew very loud. The rift was not deep compared to the plunging valley where I'd encountered the squid, but at its edge was a thick bulge of carbonate. I ducked past, scraping my hip. The rock saved me by taking the brunt of the explosions, then nearly killed me as parts of it broke away. I was stunned, slow to move. Animal Earth. The rant and slants they'd posted during our efforts here had been based on a refusal to accept our stated purpose. 
They were greens. They should have supported us, but frothed instead about the blatant destruction of ocean habitats. I stayed in the rift for two hours, watching, listening, afraid to broadcast on any channel in case there were more hunter-killers waiting to acquire targets. The attack had stopped after five minutes, but our radio communications remained incoherent. Stenstrom tried miserably to raise me on the emergency link again and again. He tried the general frequencies, too, even sharecasting his public response to the attack. One of the speedboats had been apprehended by Japanese military aircraft, and suspects were in custody. Given the armament involved and the coordination of the assault, Stenstrom suggested that the whole thing was a cover for our competitors in the nuclear or oil industries, and already there were conflicting denials and claims of solidarity from Animal Earth spokespeople. Finally, I began my ascent, goaded by the constant dig of the voices in my cheekbone. At one hundred feet I saw a man, a body, deformed by violence and twisting loosely in the current. We hesitated together in the dim, penetrating glow of the sun. Then I turned my back on him. Andrea and the boys were well provided for, and she obviously didn't need me. Brent had never needed me, and Roberto... Roberto was young enough to forget and move on. Let them think I was dead, lost to the tide. The insurance payouts alone would be a fortune. Four miles proved to be the radio's range. I kept going into the beautiful dark and never let anyone intrude on my world again. There you go. Jeff and Jeff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Team effort. What a great story. Next up is the big announcement. I'll just reach over my desk for the big announcement. I have it in my hands. The shiny new, brand new, the captain's log, Starship Sovas, the transcribe project. It is officially on sale now. Yes, after those months and months and months of trying to get this sorted out and putting the transcribers through hell. The official book, it, it is now on sale. There is one paperback and one download version so there's no different versions not like the starship sovas stories volume 2 where there will be oodles of versions this is there's one paperback and i'm not joking it is fantastic it is a great paperback size as well it's actually we copied off will wheaton because you know with lulu there's all different kind of price ranges for different areas in the world and Will Wheaton's got his head screwed on with Lulu. And we just went with Will Wheaton's size. And it's a great size. And it's cheap as chips for postage. You know what I mean? Two ninety nine, two fifty around the world. So I'm really pleased with it. And it just looks stunning. The cover by our good friend D is amazing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like I say, ask them. Stick in a couple of planets. You know, and it's, it's stunning. Do you know what I mean? We've got a great blurb on the back by Amy H. Sturgis. And I'll give you, I'm going to give you a preview of the, let you know which ones are in, which ones are picked for Starship Sofa's the very first transcribed project. I say that as if there might be another one. I think everyone who's been with this will probably not be on if there was ever a volume two. Do you know what I mean? What hard work they've went through. So we have episode one is Alfred Brester, transcribed by Craig Webster. Episode 13, Joe Haldeman, transcribed by Doug Hill. 
Episode 15, Harlan Ellison, transcribed by Will Reese. Episode 16, Douglas Adams, part 1, transcribed by Phil Ackerman. Episode 17, Douglas Adams, part 2, transcribed by Phil Ackerman. Then we have episode 24, James Triptree Jr., transcribed by Steve Bickle. Samuel R. Delaney, transcribed by Robin Bradshaw. Religion in Science Fiction, transcribed by Gail Posey. Charles Stross, transcribed by Paresh Solensky. Usual plume, I'm probably getting Paresh's name totally wrong. Then we have episode 65, Extra Bob on the Works of Terry Pratchett, that was transcribed by Gilderan. And episode 66, Moorcock Gonzo, transcribed by Phil Ackerman. Yes, Phil has done three transcriptions for this book, and I haven't seen them since. <laughs> they came away for him with straight jackets. <laughs> Phil, honestly, what a task that was for you. And like I say, it is 328 pages, and Dee's put this together, and it just looks stunning, to be quite honest. You know what I mean? It's, it is one of those things. I know that sounds quite, you know, strange. Well, not quite strange, but you hear it all the time. It is like a coffee table book. You know, if you had to pick this up and read from front page to back page in one go, God help you. But it is great just to pick it up and just to delve into it. And it's really, for me, memories. Do you know what I mean? I got a number of emails from the transcribers. You know, I think it was Robin that mentioned on the Samuel R. Delaney one that, you know, just memories for her as well of me and Kieran talking. And it was the time when Kieran and I, because we are totally opposite, if you try and think of it, me and Kieran are totally opposite in our kind of everything, really, you know, from kind of computers, I love them, Kieran cannot stand them, to even our reading. And Kieran would... And he was talking about it in show, this show. And he would, he kind of likes it to a swimming pool <laughs> escapade, you know, where I would really, with a book, carefully take off my clothes and put them down neatly, you know, fold each individual clo- bit of clothing. You know, I would read the front cover, I'd read the back cover, I'd read all the blurbs before I started a book, where Kieran would just run into the pool and do a bomb. Do you know, he doesn't bother with anything and he just starts off with the kind of front, you know, page one and reads it and that's it and it's thrown away afterwards. And just like memories like that, oh, you know, it, it's it's quite special. It's very special to us. But like I say, it's on sale there now. And, you know, if you want to support, this is, this is the way now, do you know what I mean? If you like what we do, do you know what I mean? And, you know, you want Starship Sofa to keep going. You know, there's other new magazines coming out there. But if you want Starship Sofa to keep going, this is the way. Buy yourself a copy. eleven ninety nine for this book. And I think it's four ninety nine for the download. And trust us, you, you will be getting your money's worth in here. If you can read all this, <laughs> you've go over and give you a hug. I'll be up front as well and tell you what we make on this so you know that your money's going to, you know, Starship Sofa. For £11.99, my revenue would be £4.88. So £4.88 goes directly into Starship Sofa. For the download, it's £4.99. My revenue is £3.23. So they're the hard facts. That's what I get. That's what I need to keep Starship Sofa going. Especially with this enhanced feed, which is kind of just... Triple the bloody costs there, and we're kind of scraping along with the backsides. I've always, always wanted to do Starship Sova, and I've always, always wanted to put out, you know, Starship Sova for free. This, though, 
is such a, I'm not joking, it's such a help. And I'm so proud of it. You know, it is especially proud because when I think now, we started this off in our living room, Minky, and just talking about the history of science fiction. And if you were to read Amy's blurb, actually, I'll read Amy's blurb and she hits the nail on the head so close. These transcripts allow veteran fans and newcomers alike to revisit the wonderful early episodes of Hugo-nominated Starship Sofa. In these shows, Tony C. Smith and Kieran O'Carroll pay tribute to the founding fathers and mothers of contemporary science fiction and some of the big ideas explored in their works. With a delightful blend of humour, enthusiasm and insight that drew loyal listeners from across the globe, myself including. It is fitting that while Tony and Kieran were celebrating the history of the genre, they were also making genre history themselves. Today, Starship Sofa has emerged as a vibrant voice in the world of science fiction community. This volume is a testament to the podcast's origins, as well as to the ongoing power and appeal of science fiction literature. Amy H. Sturgis, PhD. Amy, that just... Do you know what I mean? Because I asked Amy, you know, Amy, will you write something? Because I can't bloody write it. And, you know, Amy's put a heart on the line in and said that. And that means a lot. Do you know what I mean? And especially now, you know, say 10 years time, 50 years time, people might think, you know, we were part of kind of genre history, science fiction. That's an amazing thing. And this book is testament to it. So please rush yourself out. Come over to actually the funky new website that Josh has designed. Go to the front of Starship Sofa. You'll see a link on the right hand side. The Captain's Logs, click on that and that'll take you to the brand new site. From there you can get the download version or the paperback version. The paperback version is just literally, I'm really pleased with it. Like I say, the cover is amazing. Do you know what I mean? And it's got like a new logo by, designed by D as well. The name Starship Sofa with like a little rocket wrapped around it. Fantastic. And it's actually a big, you know, it's probably the size... You know, those trade paperback sizes? You know, it's a it's a real quite a nice chunky book, so you get your money's worth. And another help is get it posted on your sites, get it mentioned, do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Put it on your sites, links to the, you know, that would be amazing as well. Next week, with this kind of celebration, obviously I'm going to be, you know, harping on about Captain's Logs for a long, long time. Next week, we're going to have a special show on the Captain's Logs. There's going to be no, no main fiction, nothing like that. We're going to play the idea. I'm probably thinking is I might play the very last show that me and Kieran did. And we probably didn't realise it was going to be the last show. The last show where we delved into an art, like one of the, the writers. So I'm going to play that in full. And we're going to have some guests on and everything like that to celebrate this launch. But now that's the announcement. Starship Sofa's The Captain's Logs is on sale. Shall I give you the blurb off the front? It's hard to believe how young Starship Sofa is because it's so quickly become completely invaluable. China Mieville. Do you know what I mean? You don't know it. <laughs> Just to get that blurb on the front, get this book. The intention as well one day is to meet up with Will, one of the transcribers, and give him this book and give him it, you know, sign it for him as well in the bar. So look forward to that as well. So please support Starship Sofa. If you wanted to keep going, this is the way. Buy our book and it's fantastic. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Your Sofa, a Vacuation.